The Old Testament reading this morning is from Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with passion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We wrapped up a sermon series last week, uh, one that I was particularly fond of, um, Punk God, and we are moving into kind of a new season of the year, and I'm going to go and put some of the snippets or highlights on our blog. Uh, All of the sermons are online if you want to listen to them, but I'm not sure why you would want to listen to me twice, but if you'd like to read them um, quickly, you can. Uh, so go over there. If you didn't know we have a blog, we do. Um, you can subscribe and bump our uh, reader total up in maybe the double digits. Um, that'd be nice. Uh, so go back and you can uh, revisit some of those themes. But what happens in between certain sermon series and seasons of the church is we have this little interim time, a few times a year, and it's too short for a long sermon series uh, and too early to start kind of the season. We have Advent coming up. I've been here about 10 years, and so I've got lots and lots and lots of sermons, and some of them are really great. Others are even better. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, We're going to start a kind of a, a approach to these interim times and revisiting what I'm calling classics. And though I'd like to think that some of my four or five hundred sermons, that there are a few that are exceptionally good, that's not what makes them classics. We're not doing them because these are like the Highway 61 revisited sermons in my catalog, but because they represent something fundamental about what we're trying to do here at InTown. They encapsulate themes that you're likely to hear over and over. And one of the themes that you probably are going to hear over and over would be what I would consider the upside-down nature of 
the gospel, the upside-down nature of the good news of Jesus, that when He comes to town, He flips the religious script on its head. The good, the religious people, the in-crowd, those who are expecting places of honor in the new regime, well, they're disappointed. They're offended. While those on the margins, the disfavored, the disliked, the outcast, they find a place of belonging. They find a place of friendship. They find grace and welcome. And we see this over and over throughout the Gospels, and we saw that in Luke 18 that we read earlier today, but it may surprise you that this sort of idea is in the Old Testament too. Now, granted, it's often in subtext and often in nuance, but Jesus isn't doing something that's radically new in terms of what has come before in the Old Testament. He is standing with both feet and maybe reemphasizing a very disruptive tradition among prophets like Jesus. And we see this in prophets like Jonah. Everything in this story is upside down. The prophets are pagans and the pagans are prophets. You see, Jonah is this prophet, and what is he doing? He's trying to run from God. He's trying to escape from Him. He's hating those that he's been called to serve and to minister to, and eventually we find him angrily debating God and wanting to die. But then the pagans, those that we expect to want nothing to do with God, these pagan sailors, they're the ones that demonstrate compassion. They're the ones who pray. They're the ones who repent. They're the ones that turn to God when His Word reaches them. And so the people, with every reason to receive God, they reject Him. And the people, with every reason to reject God, they receive Him. It's this very inverted, upside-down counterintuitive aspect of God entering into our world with a specific message that tends to disrupt, especially those of us who are religious. Now, we see this narrative set up in chapter 1 where he's told to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness. This is, come up before me, God says. In other words, the evil that inhabits the city is so rich and so pungent that the aroma has risen to heaven, and it is infecting God's nostrils. That's this idea that the writer is getting across. The entire city is a microcosm of violence and human corruption and lostness. It's a culture of war, and the Ninevites are chewing up smaller nations. And add to that that they are Israel's sworn enemy, enemy. Israel can't stand the Ninevites. So you'd think that Jonah would relish the opportunity to go tell them that, hey, God doesn't like you very much. That tends to be the instinct, right, of very religious people, that God doesn't like these other people. They enlist God in their dislike of other categories. But even though the command here is go preach against their wickedness, Jonah, it seems, knows that there's something more going on. Why does he not relish that opportunity to put them in their place? So he receives this revelation, go to Nineveh, and where does he go? 
he goes to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. He goes in the, to the farthest place of sort of the known world in the opposite direction, and he boards this ship. And in transit, this great storm comes. And it's so bad that the Hebrew kind of anthropomorphizes the ship as if it's threatening these sailors that it's going to disintegrate itself. That's how bad this storm is. And it's so bad that these sailors, these hardened mariners, start throwing stuff overboard. We've got to lighten the load so that we can survive. And then these hardened pagan mariners, they start praying. And where's Jonah? Well, he's down in the ship's hold, and he's asleep. Does this sound familiar to anyone here? Jesus sort of pulled this same thing with his disciples a number of years later. And these ship people, mariners, uh, they go to Jonah, and they're like, what are you doing? Get up here and pray like the rest of us. This is an emergency. How can you sleep? And then they ask, well, who is responsible? Because in the ancient mindset, if a storm comes and you're about to die, then you've obviously done something to offend God. So we've got to figure out which one of us is it. And Jonah says, well, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And they respond with this kind of what's now become this classic movie trope, you know, what have you done? What have you done? This line in various forms since the bridge over the River Kwai. I'm sure some of, some of you my age and older have maybe seen that, but Colonel Nicholson, he's played by um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, realizes that he's been collaborating with the enemy in building this bridge out of sheer ego. And he cries out his final words are, what have I done? What have I done? And the last line of the film, the final remaining main character answers this question. He says, madness, madness. The pagans see the prophets utter madness. What have you done? You run from God on the seas that he created? That doesn't sound very smart. What have you done to us? You're living dangerously, and now you have endangered our lives. And the writer, Jonah, chooses to put, put the prophetic word, not in Jonah's mouth, but in the pagans' mouths. Now, Jonah, that name means dove. And we have these kind of happy ideas of doves. You know, you let them go at a wedding, and they fly away, and it's very pretty. And in the New Testament, dove is a symbol of purity. But guess what it means in the Old Testament? Anyone know? I don't know why you would, but it means silly. It means senseless. It means moronic. Jonah, in this story, is a moron because he's trying to escape in this boat on the seas that God has created and governs. He zigged when he should have zagged. What have you done? 
You've endangered us. And yet, these men, what do they do? They row furiously to try and save him. It's quite a contrast. And he's thrown overboard. And this great fish comes and get him, gets him. Not a great whale, it's a great fish. And maybe you are sitting out there and you're thinking, a great fish, come on, let's be serious. That doesn't happen, it's never happened, and Christians through the years have tried to answer this. It's a baleen whale or it's a whale shark. It's something very, very big. They're huge. Of course they could swallow Jonah. And William Jennings Bryan made this argument in the Scopes Monkey Trial very famously. A God who can make a whale and can make a man and make both of them do, can make both of them do what he pleases. It seems kind of logical and fair. If God is who he says he is, then sure. Then why not? Why couldn't he make a whale to swallow a man? And so that's one possibility. But trying to explain these fantastical features presumes that it's a certain kind of literature that needs to be explained, that we need to give a scientific explanation for how this could happen. We need to explain why this actually took place in sort of a videotape way, in exactly the way that it tells it. But what if instead of a historical reportage, that it's satire, that it's parody, that it's parable? Incidentally, I I said something close to this about six years ago, and we had one family that left the church because of this. So I don't know why I'm saying this again, but I think it's important. Why is this idea so threatening? If you've grown up in the church and maybe Jonah has been explained that this certain sort of whale has this opening in his mouth and he swallowed and it's possible biologically and blah, 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 this may be kind of threatening because if we give this up, then how do we not give up biblical authority all over the place? But where is this book cataloged in the Old Testament? The Hebrew mind put it not in the historical books, but they put it in prophecy. And if you read prophecy, there's all sorts of things that are fantastical and mythological and huge and hyperbolic. And so why should that upset us? We're very comfortable reading Jesus' prodigal son story, for example, and not wondering, well, where did he live, and was he a real person, and that sort of thing. We just understand that it's a story. And to call it, or demand, I should say, that it's literal history sort of misses the point of the story. Now, if you want to hold on to Jonah being a literal story, I'm not challenging that. I'm just trying to explain that there are other ways to read these things. And so, Don't check out, pick up your bag, because these weird Christians believe that whales can swallow men. What's a bigger miracle, after all, that God sustains a human in the belly of a fish, or that this nationalistic, recalcitrant prophet like Jonah might learn to care for his enemies? Now, that is a miracle, according to the Bible. This narrative shows Jonah going down, down, down. He goes to Joppa, which is down, on his way to Tarshish. He goes down into the interior of the boat. He goes down into the sea. He goes all the way down 
that he goes to the very roots of the mountains, which are where? At the bottom of the ocean. That's where the roots of the mountains are. And then finally, he goes down one more step because he prays to God from where? He prays from the pit, from Sheol, from the realm of the dead. And this image that Jonah is giving us is that every step away from God is a step closer to death. Running from God is always a downward path. It's toward your own destruction. It's not just that don't disobey God. It's that when you walk away from Him, when you disobey Him, it's to your own detriment. And then, where does he find himself? As he goes down, 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 he finds himself alone. He's alone in the hold of the boat. And in chapter 2, you get his sort of emotional state. He's distressed. He feels banished from life and from relationship with God. He feels that his life is ebbing away. That's where his rejection of God has led him. Every step away from God is a step nearer to death. And his prideful heart, his recalcitrant heart has left him lonely. It's left him despondent. He chooses spiritual poverty to avoid bringing grace to someone else. And God's response, how does he respond to this? What the Bible would call sin. God pursues him. He pursues him with his voice. He pursues him with the voices of these pagans. He pursues him with a fish. He pursues him with a storm. And while that doesn't sound like a picnic, where does, how does Jonah interpret that? He prays, you brought me up from the pit. And he sings a song of thanksgiving. Hanging out in the belly of the whale, of a whale, doesn't sound too enticing. It doesn't sound like a very pleasant way to spend a few days. But Jonah sees it as deliverance. Jonah sees it as rescue. At least he eventually does. God pursues him, and then God gives him a second chance. Chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh and give them my message. And Nineveh then, we are told, believes. They repent and they fast. The whole city, it says. I mean, these are like Billy Graham kind of numbers. He should be happy if he's this missionary sent on this journey He should be jumping up and down, greatest missionary ever. But what does Jonah do? Jonah, verse 1 of chapter 4, was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said? (laughs) Didn't I tell you, God, that you were going to do this? I knew you'd do this. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Just kill me now. If that's who you are, he wants to die because God is gracious and slow to send calamity. It's better for me to die than to live, is what Jonah says. 
So I don't know what your impression is of this story, what you've heard. If you grew up in Sunday school, often this is told in such a way that it's better to obey God than to not because look what happened to Jonah. He got swallowed by a whale. And little boys and girls, be careful because you don't want to get swallowed by a whale. And that's not quite the lesson. That may be a subtext in terms of where Jonah's journey starts from and where it ends, that walking away from God has consequences. But it's something deeper because the problem with Jonah is much more malevolent than he just disobeyed. It's much more than just a simple refusal to not go where God told him because we need to ask the question of why did he not go? Why did he go in the opposite direction? Because it seems that he wants God to be with him and his tribe, but not with them. That's really the issue, isn't it? What have they done to deserve your presence, God? He's mad when they repent and turn to God. He can't fathom a God without enemies. He can't fathom being an us without a them. You see, friends, I think we're given these stories not so that we can ponder the historical circumstances and ask, could this really happen? And we're not given this just to know about this combativeness between, between the Israelites and the Ninevites that they really didn't get along. But I think we're meant to ask at some level, who are our Ninevites? And what does that tell us about ourselves And what does that tell us about our sense of God? Who are our Ninevites? Who are yours this morning? Are they those terrible Democrats? Are they those ridiculous fundamentalist Republicans? And ask, well, who are the enemies of that tribe that appeal to me? Why is it easy for me to hate the same people that my party hates? Is it illegal immigrants? Is it corporate elites? And what self-serving bias does that imply? Why do I not like those people? Is it a parent or a spouse that are your Ninevites, and you just don't want them to receive grace? You get prickly when something good happens in their lives. And we should ask ourselves, what does staying this Staying in this perpetual cycle of conflict, tell me about my self-identity. What do I stand to benefit from this in keeping them at arm's length? Do you find yourself ever secretly resenting someone else's success or wishing for their downfall? It could be someone at work that gets more credit than you. It could be a politician. It could be a parent. It could be your spouse, and you're just secretly rooting for something to go poorly in their life. Things tend to to go so well. Or maybe we should ask, do our theologies that we buy into, do our political ideologies, if they're based upon exclusion, why does that appeal to us? Why do we need 
a them in order to be an us. Jonah is saying to God, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you would do this. I knew you wouldn't do what you should, which is punish these terrible, nasty, brutish Ninevites. You said that you were going to punish them, and you didn't. Religious people tend to be, at least in the Bible, more righteous than God. He quotes Exodus 34, that God punishes wickedness to the third and fourth generation, but he extends his love to a thousand generations. What is he saying? That's not a happy verse for Jonah. He's saying that, God, sure you're holy, sure you judge, but how can you be so cavalier with your grace that you would give it to the Ninevites? He's whining that God might be merciful. Who are your Ninevites? Who's unworthy of God's love in your mind? And friends, I think what's the painful truth about this is that this insider-outsider mindset is often grounded in the belief that it's you, that it's you who are unworthy, that it's you who God really doesn't like. You see, insiders hate outsiders because why? They feel that their belonging is threatened. Winston Churchill says in the front of your bulletin, well, he didn't say it in the front of your bulletin, but I wrote it in the front of your bulletin, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. Insiders hate outsiders because they feel their belonging is threatened. You see, if, if God lets anyone in, then it undermines our sense of why we're in, a sense of belonging by merit. If it's so easy that he greases the skids for these other people, then what does that say about all the hard work I've done to belong here, belong in this place? And we cling, right, to these boundary markers because we're not sure we really belong. We keep others out because our status is tenuous. And I think what we see in the gospel finally is that those who have received the grace of God and who really understand it, they should be the most gracious to others. They should be the most liberated in their love, that they're not trying to make sure no one abuses it, that they're just giving it away, that they're the most free to give, they're the most generous in extending mercy. You see, Jonah, his name means dove, but he's also a son. He's also a son of Amittai, and Amittai means son of my faithfulness. Jonah, this silly, moronic person, yet He's still a son because who is faithful? God. He is a son of Amittai, and he will continue to be a son of Amittai, even though he's so silly and senseless, and he has walked against me. God pursues the Ninevites, you see, but this is no threat to, J to Jonah. God's grace, friends, is never a zero-sum game. There's always more room inside. 
And whether you're the virtuous pagan or the anxious Pharisee, God offers his welcome, his invitation, his forgiveness, and he offers his faithfulness that you can be son or daughter of Amittai as Jonah is. So let's take him up on that. Let's pray. Father, we often feel like orphans in this world, even those of us who have come from a solid home with two parents and we've had a house and a roof over our head, we've not missed meals, and yet we still feel listless and homeless and lost in the universe. And I pray that, if nothing else, that we would come to understand your invitation to be your sons and daughters, to have a forever home, that you are faithful and that you will hold on to us. And I pray that that knowledge would cause us not to walk away, but to hold on to you even more fully. And let us do, the, do so as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.